Well, good morning, New City. How are you doing today? Listen, it's <laughs> roll tide, okay? I hear you. You know, I guess you're not far from there, right? Um, it is great to see you. My name is Kyle Wilkinson. I bring you love and greetings from the Summit Church where I serve as a worship pastor and so glad to be with you here this morning. You know, I've learned some things about Tampa. I've learned that we're getting into cold weather right now, which being from North, being from North Carolina, growing up in North Carolina, I'm like, this is perfect. It's not cold, but you know, some people are putting on, starting to put on some gloves. Like, you know, the local Tampa people wearing the gloves, like Boomer's wearing his long sleeve shirt. I'm here, my t-shirt, he's, they've got boots on, I've got my tennis shoes. I had to pull out my like spring clothes, you know, my t-shirts, all that stuff. So it's, it's just, it's been great. My wife and I, my wife's down here, Bailey, and uh, we've been here um, for about 24 hours now and first time ever to Tampa. Love Tampa, it's been a great experience. Um, and, you know, first service was great to preach, but pressure's on now because my wife's here, and I really need to, really want to impress her today. I'm just kidding. She's not impressed with me. All right, so um, I want to, <laughs> you like that. You're married, obviously. Um, so want to thank AJ, Pastor AJ, a dear friend of mine, a brother. Love him so much, and his wife, Jordan, their whole family. AJ is a humble, faithful, servant-hearted leader. And I hope that you will take some time to thank him for his ministry here and the way he loves and serves you. Also, so thank you, AJ, for having me. I'm thankful for you. Um, always encouraged by him. And Pastor Eric, thank you for having me here this morning. Uh, maybe you heard the news. They had a baby, which is amazing. Congratulations. Um, thank you for trusting me to stand in your, in your spot here as you pastor this church. Um, New City family, unless you're on s- staff with these guys, and the other staff members and pastors here or married to one, you have no idea the way they sacrifice for you. You have no idea the things that they do to love and care for you. Every morning when you show up, maybe you helped with this, but every morning you show up and these, all these things are here, they, they, they put it here. The staff and so many of the volunteers here. And October is Pastor Appreciation Month. You only got like a week left. I hope sometime this month you will take the time to share an encouraging word, to write a note to let your pastors know how much you love and appreciate them. So will you join me in thanking your pastors and staff here at New City? <laughs> Grab your Bible if you don't have it open already. We're going to Judges 9, which, let me just go ahead and tell you, is a mess. I, it's like Pastor Eric says, I'm gonna be on paternity leave. Let's preach through Judges. Here you guys go. Judges 9's a mess. So before we jump into Judges 9, let's get a little recap on what's actually happening in the book of Judges. So let's look at this little cycle here, the Judges cycle on the screen. So as you can see, we are working off of a pattern here in Judges. This pattern begins immediately after the death of Joshua in Judges chapter 2. Joshua's the leader, he took over after Moses. You know, Moses delivered the people out of Egypt and then they're going into the promised land. Moses doesn't get to go. A lot of other people don't get to go. Joshua takes this, the next generation of Israelites into the promised land. So Joshua's the leader who brings them into this land to drive out the other nations to get to the land that God promised to give them. So Joshua brings them in and then Judges 2, Joshua dies. The leader dies. That's the pattern starting all the way at the book of Joshua or book of Judges. See in the top left, left corner, the leader dies. Rest in peace, Joshua. The people rebel. This is what it says 
in Judges chapter two, not on the screen, just keep this, this here in your mind. And the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, that is the gods of the surrounding nations. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. So the people rebelled. Because of that, God disciplines Israel. What happens is the surrounding nations then come and oppress and suppress the people of Israel, and they rule over them. Then Israel comes to their senses. You've seen this all the way through to Judges chapter eight, and they say, God, we have sinned. We, we repent from our sin. We turn again to you, and we worship you. Deliver us from the surrounding nations. God being the merciful, kind, gracious God that he is, he raises up a leader from within the people of Israel to conquer and drive out the surrounding nations. A military leader comes up. So they're like these tribal leaders that God just pulls up and he, they push out. And through the salvation that he gives to a chosen leader, they experience peace. However long that, that judge or that leader lives, they have peace. But then what happens after that? They die. Let's do it again. That's what you got through Judges 8. As you have studied this, strong leadership strong leadership themes arise from the book of Judges. One being that God raises up unlikely leaders to deliver his people and accomplish his purposes. Another is similar. God can use anyone to accomplish his purposes in the world. Now what's interesting when you get to Judges 9, the typical pattern that you've seen doesn't show up. So in Judges 9, we've had the same pattern over and over again. But at the end of Judges 8, you see the, rule, the judge at that time, Gideon, he dies. If you've got a Bible open, you can look right there at the end of chapter 8, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their God. So our, new, our normal pattern would tell us because of this, God would give them over to judgment to a surrounding nation. That nation would come and oppress the people. He would raise a leader to deliver them. However, this time, a leader rises from within the people of Israel. And this leader has evil in his heart, and he himself oppresses the people of Israel. He himself causes division in Israel. He himself causes death in Israel. This leader has evil intent in his heart and he raises up because he is determined to lead at whatever cost. That's where we find ourselves in Judges 9. This leader's name is Abimelech. So we're gonna pick up in Judges 9, one through six. You follow along with me in your Bible or follow along with me here on the screen. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother, and they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the son of Jeroboam, 70 men 
on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. As we start reading here in Judges 9, we see a plan unfold in the heart of Abimelech. See, Abimelech was one of the sons of Gideon. Apparently it said that he had 70 brothers. Let's talk about a big family. That's a lot of brothers to keep track of. In this, it's important to note that Abimelech was the only illegitimate son of Gideon. Illegitimate meaning that he was born to Gideon's concubine, who was from Shechem. Abimelech's name means my father is king. My father is king. I just want you to think about how might that influence the way you think if every time, every time someone calls your name, they're saying, Abimelech, my father is king. Every time he hears his name, he thinks, my father is king. My father is king. Abimelech, my father is king. What, that, what might that do to a person? to their mental state. Okay, maybe if my father is king, that means my father's dead, therefore maybe I'm supposed to be king. And you know what's interesting too is Gideon wasn't even king. He was a ruler that God had established and set up. He wasn't a king, but he sure acted like one. The fact that he had 70 sons, good indicator that he did a lot of king-like things because that's a, a common practice of kings in that time. And thus we have the name Abimelech, my father is king. And so, as Gideon's illegitimate son, who has no right to rule, no right to inheritance, no right to leadership, he wants to secure his place in leadership as king. There's no evidence that God raised Abimelech up to lead, but Abimelech clearly has the desire to establish himself as king through whatever means possible. So he goes to his mother's brothers in Shechem. Now to our ears, we hear Shechem. Okay, great, that's another town. But Shechem has incredible significance in the life of Israel. If you go to Genesis 12 in your Bibles, where God gives the promise to Abram that he's gonna make him a great nation, that he's gonna establish his covenant, that his descendants will be like the stars of heaven, and that he will give him this promised land. That promise to Abram happened in the area of Shechem. Finally, when Joshua takes over and brings the people into the promised land, the land that God promised to, Gen to Abram in Genesis 12, into Shechem, when, when Joshua brings those leaders in, they worship for the first time as they cross the Jordan River. They worship together for the first time in Shechem. It's this area of incredible historical, spiritual significance for the people of Israel. And it's into this area that Abimelech walks into his family. He's like, hey guys, um, I don't know if you know, Gideon's not here anymore. He's got 70 sons. Wouldn't it be better for you if I, your family member, ruled over you? And they kind of look at each other like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. It would be great for us to have our family member as ruler here. They give him 70 pieces of, pieces of silver, perhaps one for every brother that he would have to kill. He takes that money. He goes and hires worthless and reckless men to carry out this task. Now really, get a picture here. Like, I, I need you to feel what's happening here. Abimelech is willing to murder 70 family members to be king. 70. That's some strong desire. 
70. Also notice the leaders of Shechem. He comes to them with this plan and they go along with it. They're willing to buy in to this thing he's selling. Maybe they thought, okay, we're going to pay him to get this job done. And if he's successful, we can have a return on our investment. Because wouldn't it be good for us if one of our family members was king? I also want you to notice when Abimelech comes to these leaders, he has no army. He has no following. He goes to his family. They don't actually follow him. He goes to the leaders of Shechem. They don't actually follow him. They give him money to hire followers. The only people that were actually following Abimelech in this story are ones he paid to do it. As scripture says, worthless and reckless men who are willing to take financial compensation for murder. It's pretty intense. It's already quite the mess. As you think about Abimelech and as you think about the leaders of Shechem, I have my first point of application I want you to consider here. Application point number one. The quality of a person's heart is revealed in their actions and in who follows them. The quality of a person's heart is revealed in their actions and in who follows them. We can learn a lot about ourselves by looking at Abimelech. Sometimes we can convince ourselves that our heart is in a good place even if our outward actions are misunderstood by those around us. I want to challenge you about that. I want to challenge you to take a look at your actions with friends, family, coworkers, with your spouse, with your children, with your neighbors. Take a hard look at your outward actions and ask yourself, what do these actions communicate about the state of my heart? It's not enough to justify your actions with, well, I mean, you know my heart. No, your actions reveal the intent of your heart. Abimelech's actions revealed the evil intent of his heart to rule at all cost. When you look at your actions in your life, the outward things that you do, the way you talk to people, the choices you make, the way you carry yourself day to day, what do they say about what's in your heart? Do you like what you see? Do you see a heart that loves God and loves other people? Or do you see a heart that like Abimelech wants to rule at all costs? That wants your way, whatever the cost. I'd also like to challenge you, take a look around you. Who, who looks to you? Who follows you? Who's drawn to you? Now, I'm not talking about the way Jesus helped the least of these and our call as Christians to help the least of these. But I'm just thinking, what types of people are drawn to your leadership, to your influence? When you look around at people who are looking to you, are they people of integrity? Are they people of character? Or like Abimelech, are they worthless and reckless men? Because people who have integrity, people who have character, they don't follow people of worthless and reckless intention. In fact, people of integrity are repulsed by people with worthless, reckless, evil in their heart. Examine your actions. Examine who is looking to you, who is following you. Do you like what you see? And if you're continually looking around and followed by people of questionable character, maybe you ought to pause to consider your own character. 
Now, as we turn our attention back to the Bible, we see a problem emerge with Abimelech's plan. Of the 70 brothers that he went to kill, one escapes, which, side note, if you're trying to kill 70 people, it's probably easy to lose count, right? Like, come on, man. One guy gets away, but the leaders of Shechem, they think the, they think the job's done. They take Abimelech, they anoint and appoint him as king. Congratulations, King Abimelech, you did it. All hail, King Abimelech. He's over here, he's king, the job is done. Up comes that brother, Jotham, who made it out, who hid himself and escaped. He rises up to issue a proclamation, to issue a parable and, a, and judgment, a prophetic word of judgment against Abimelech. So in making Abimelech king, the people of Israel say, Abimelech says, my father is king, therefore I am king. The people of Israel say, or Shechem say, yes, you are king. In making him king, they have rejected God as king. But Jotham stands over here, whose name means Yahweh is blameless and perfect. And Yahweh, God himself, through Jotham, issues judgment against Abimelech and Shechem. Yahweh's way is blameless and perfect. He tells a parable. I'm going to summarize this for you in verses 7 through 15. As you have time, you can go and read this tells a parable about the trees. It says the trees went out to look for a king to rule over them. Now the leaders of Shechem are these trees going out to look for a king. They go to the most noble of all trees first. They go to the olive tree. Say, oh, a great olive tree. Come and rule over us. Be our leader. Be our king. The olive tree says, I got better things to do. Pass. They go to the fig tree. Oh, great fig tree with the fruit that you produce and the shade, come and rule over us. Be our ruler, be our king. Fig tree says, no thanks. So they think, okay, how about the vine? It's not a tree, but it's pretty significant. It, it produces grapes, very significant in that society and culture. Oh, great vine, rule over us, be our leader. The vine again, no thank you, pass. Trees, who will rule over us? Ah, I have an idea. What about the thorn bush? This is a great idea. What about, what about this little shrub of a plant? Maybe this thorn bush will come and rule over us. Maybe your Bible translation says the bramble will come rule over us. So they say, oh, great thorn bush, bramble. Come and be our king. And he says, sure, come and rest in my shade. Think about it. Bush, shade. Not compatible what shade can a thorn bush provide for trees? What fruit can a thorn bush provide? What Jotham is saying is you have appointed a king that can offer you no shade and no fruit. Can't do anything as your ruler and as your king. In fact, if you lived in that area, you would know that these thorn bushes are notorious for catching fire and causing wildfires. You've elected a king that gives you no fruit, no shade, and oh yeah, guess what? He's gonna catch fire. Notorious for catching wildfires in that region. Woo! That's problematic. 
It's following this parable that Jotham then issues his prophetic judgment against the people. This is what he says in verse 16. If you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam, that is Gideon, same guy in case I missed that, and his house, and have done to him as as his deeds deserve. Pause there, just keep that right there. If is the key word here. If. Now, have the leaders of Shechem acted in good faith and integrity? Have they dealt well with the house of Jeroboam and Gideon? The answer is a resounding no. The only reason they made, the only reason they made Abimelech king is because he said, hey, we're family. He didn't even have a good campaign speech. He didn't even have good promises. He's like, hey, I'm your brother. And they said, yeah, you are. Yeah, sure, this sounds good. You can be king. Give him a bunch of money. And then what did they do to the sons of Gideon? They murdered them. Jotham knows they didn't act in good faith and integrity, and we know it too. So what is this prophetic judgment that he gives in verse 19 and 21? If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam, and with this house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, your great king, and let him also rejoice in you, his loyal subjects. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. If you have not acted in good faith and integrity, let the thorn bush that you have made king catch fire and devour you. Woo! If you haven't acted in good faith and integrity, then this relationship you've created, let it be flipped on its head so that it doesn't lead to prosperity for both parties, but leads to destruction. May this mutual agreement you've entered into actually lead to your mutual destruction. Can you feel the heat here? is intense and where is this leading what happens next we know where all signs point here like we already have the questions answered they didn't act in good faith didn't act in integrity what happens next is amazing in verse 22 God enters the picture explicitly he enters the story he intervenes verse 22 Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years what a mess of a three-year period and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Three years after Jotham's prophecy, God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And here we have the beginning of the end. For keeping with this fire imagery, this bush, this wildfire imagery, the fire has officially been lit and it will continue to grow until both Abimelech and Shechem are destroyed. 
The remaining verses of Judges 9, and I, we don't have time to work through all of them because there's 55 verses here in this chapter. The remaining verses of Judges 9 detail the downward progression of the relationship that grows into the, the inferno of judgment between these two parties. This fire culminates in a final showdown at the very end of the chapter between the two all the way down in verses 50 and 55. So let me tell you what happens there. And then I'll show you what, how it wraps up. Abimelech closes the people of Shechem into a tower. They are running from Abimelech. He shuts them in a tower. They've barricaded themselves in to keep safe from the leader that they appointed and funded. He is gathering wood, putting it around the base of the tower to catch it on fire in order to kill the people of Shechem. Wild. We see what Jotham predicted coming alive here at the end. Just imagine it, gathering, gathering. He's putting the stuff around there. The people keeping safe in the top of the tower. Then a woman, as women are very good at doing, takes the situation into her own hands. I mean that as a compliment, all right? She takes a stone, holds it out from the tower, drops it, hits Abimelech in the head. Let's go, let's go, women. All right? Married with two daughters, okay? He didn't see that one coming. He knows he's dying. He looks at his armor base and says, hey, just take me out, stab me, kill me. Game over. Abimelech is dead, and this is how it wraps up. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their hands. And upon him, them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Application number two. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. From our text today, we could say it like this. If you kill all your brothers to make yourself king, you will have a stone dropped on your head. I think we'll wrap up the sermon right there. Seriously, brothers and sisters, we have to understand that our motives and our actions have consequences. They're intricately tied together. Your motives and desires work themselves outward through your actions. And both our motives and our actions are evaluated and judged by God in this life and in the life to come. This concept of reaping, sowing and reaping, in the story of Abimelech, it's the Old Testament depiction of the New Testament promise in Galatians 6, 7 through 10. It's reaping and sowing, the story of Abimelech. It's the Old Testament depiction of the New Testament promise in Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Let's, let's look at that verse together. Galatians 6, starting in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Family, evil begets evil. Division begets division. God allows what Abimelech sows to become fully grown to the point of his own death. In fact, because of the evil intent of his heart, God actually sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. The very people he convinces to fund him and help him are the people who turns on him and kill him. So I have to ask you today, what are you sowing? What seeds are you planting? And what are these seeds going to grow into? What are you going to reap in a month from what you plant today? In a year? In five years? In ten years? What will it grow into? What will you harvest? What will you reap? I want you to take a moment and just consider the different areas of your life. Think about your relationship with the Lord. What are you sowing into? Are you waking up daily and saying, God, I need you. I need to hear from you in your word. I need to hear from you through prayer. I need fellowship and communion with you. You are my life. I'm desperate for you and I need you. Are you sowing into your relationship with God like that? Or, is, or you've made God just a little piece of the pie of your life and he's got his thing over here and I got my life over here. What are you sowing into in your walk with the Lord? What about friendship? I know in our, in our communities all around the world, people are lonelier than ever. My wife often says, I think she got it from a friend, it takes a good, you have to be, a, if you want good friends, you have to be a good friend. Is that how you say it? If you want good friends, you have to be a good friend. Maybe the reason why we're so lonely and don't feel like we have deep friendships is because we're not sowing into them. We're not being a good friend. We're not reaching out. We're not calling people up. We're not shooting them a text. We're not inviting them to our homes. Maybe we're reaping loneliness because we're not being faithful to sow into friendships. What about marriage? Are you, are you on cruise control for my married friends in the room? Are you coming to the table with mercy and grace and compassion and a listening ear and empathy and a desire to understand? Man, it takes a lot of patience to be married, especially if you're married to me, especially if you're Bailey down here. It takes a lot of patience. What are you planting in your marriage? parents in the room you got kids man I'm just a moment of honesty with you here so often I discipline my children out of personal inconvenience or annoyance not out of a desire to see Christ formed in my children I have to ask myself the question if I parent my kids over and over again out of personal annoyance and inconvenience what is that going to do in 10 years from now when my oldest is 15? Is she going to feel like she's annoying to me? 
God, give us the grace to form Christ in our children, not to discipline because it's bothersome to us, their behavior, their activity, the things they're doing, things they're saying, but because we actually want to see the character and heart of God formed in our children. Think about that, parents. Man, it's exhausting. God, give us grace and help us. What about your work? What about your work? Are you skipping corners? Are you treating people poorly? Are you treating with the dignity and love and respect that they deserve? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He will allow you to reap what you sow and every single one of us will face the judgment of God in this life and in the life to come. Application number three. God is in charge no matter what it looks like. When you look at this one specific story of Judges 9 with a magnifying glass, one question comes to my mind. You may be asking it too. How can, be, how can God be ruling and reigning in this mess? First, we just need to acknowledge that the book of Judges itself is a mess. In fact, when I read Joshua, Joshua and Judges and a lot of the Old Testament, I, I'm like, what is happening here? Like, this is a mess. We see the brokenness and the sin of humanity and the devastating consequences of that. We also see a complex picture of God and his holiness and perfection and his dealings with the brokenness of sin and humanity. So how does God maintain his rule and reign in the mess of the world, in, in human sin and brokenness? I think he does it in two ways. First way, sometimes God's direction in the course of history is active and obvious. Think Genesis 1. God spoke and it came to be. God, actively speaking, things happening and changing. In this book, God sends an evil spirit between the two parties. It's active. Actively a work. Other times, his work feels more passive. It's like we see the laws of the, uni of the universe which God has established, which God ordained and established when he laid the foundation of the world. We see the laws of the universe, the laws of the world acting together as God created them to. For instance, the law of reaping and sowing, natural consequences for your actions. God wove that in to the fabric of creation and he's using those things to rule and reign through all time and all places. Is this easy to understand, God's active and passive rule and lead and, and, and reigning? No, not easy to understand, but it is true. And if we look at individual stories like this in Judges 9, we can limit our understanding of God and his dealings with humanity. But we have to take a moment, we zoom out. And it's like this tapestry here. Let's look at this picture together. This picture of a tapestry, which is a woven work of art. Can we have that picture up here on the screen, the tapestry, please? There we go. On the right side, you see the back. It's a jumbled mess of yarn. When we look at a story like this, we say, what a mess. What is going on here? But when we flip Judges 9 over, we see it in the context of Scripture. We see God uses even this mess of a story to weave it through in his great redemption plan throughout Scripture's. We follow the journey of Abimelech and Shechem and we see this story, a vast picture of the brokenness of humanity and the division and hurt caused by evil people. But what we also see here in Judges 9, we see a picture of God 
who is active and who is present. Even when we say, what is going on? God's there. He's in the midst of it. Leading, ruling, reigning. And the good news for us today is that God's character and ways never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So family, when we zoom out and we look at our world, it's so easy to say, what is happening, God? Look at the mess of our world that we're in, even now, today. We look at our communities, we say, God, what is going on here? What is, what is going on in culture? What is going on in Tampa? What is going on in RDU? We look at our own families and we say, God, it's such a mess sometimes. And we look inward at our own personal desires and motivations and we say, God, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. What is happening in me, Lord? I want to assure you today that when you say, how can God be at work in this? Know that he's the same just as he was at work in the mess of Judges 9. He is at work in your mess. Actively and passively in ways that you see and feel and in ways that you don't. Even when you can't see, even when you can't feel it, God is at work in your life and in your mess. How do I know this? Just take a look at the cross. Take a look at Jesus. His disciples, they followed him for three years believing he was the promised one, the Messiah that all the scriptures pointed to. And he was betrayed. And he was beaten. And he was mocked. And he hung on a cross. He was crucified. And he died and he was buried. And his disciples who followed him for three years, they looked at the tomb and there their Savior was buried, dead, silent, hope lost. And yet, on the third day, Jesus rose again to life, defeating the power of sin and death. And the tapestry that looked like a jumbled mess of yarn is flipped over. And you see the beautiful picture in the art that God was creating through the death and resurrection of Jesus. What his disciples thought was a mess, God called a beautiful work of art in which he was redeeming, saving, and healing the world. God is at work. Whether we see it or not, whether we feel it or not, and at the cross, we see the ultimate picture of God's rule and reign. God is in charge, even when it doesn't look like it. Will you join me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today that is able to teach, correct, and rebuke us. Father, through your word, shape us into the image of Jesus. And in the middle of our messes, in the mess of our world, help us to believe, see, and know that you are at work, that you are at charge, even when it doesn't look like it. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Form us more completely into the image of Christ, we pray. Amen.